This is the John Oakley Show podcast. There has been a report that Peter McKay, running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, uh, has really launched his campaign uh, in disorganized fashion. And this is what's reported, at least in the Toronto Star, through anonymous sources. And Jamie Ellerton is a principal at a PR agency called Canaptus. Uh, The communication strategy of leaders or putative leaders is obviously drawn into question. And so let's find out from Jamie, who's joined me in the studio, what the Dickens is going on with the McKay camp. Jamie, good to have you here on the Oakley Show. What do you hear? What do you know? Thanks for having me in. Well, I think it's pretty obvious if you look at some of the constant, it seems every second day there's another negative Peter McKay story that's kind of knocking him off track and off for the more positive things he wants to be talking about. Uh, and so he's got to get his ship in order quite quickly. If you look at kind of the nature of this race, no one knew what the rules were going to be. No one was even sure if Andrew Shear was going to step down. So candidates couldn't really put in a full team in place uh, prior to launching like you would have, say, expected last time around. So once they saw the rules, they launched. But now here they are filling out the rest of their team and coming up with a national strategy after the fact. And it sounds like there's a lot of process things uh, going on behind the scenes, whereas a lot of these kind of like own goals, shoot yourself in the foot things are not getting caught before they go out. But the whole thing culminates June 27th. It's so far away, four and a half months. I mean, there's a lot of time to write the ship. Uh, how do we know, for example, look, uh, I'm reading that three sources told the Star on Wednesday the McKay camp is disorganized, doesn't have a formal structure, with frustration growing among insiders working on his leadership bid. The sources spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss internal campaign matters. Guy could be gaslighted by three anonymous sources that told the Toronto Star. Now, is that an unimpeachable source for a credible uh, news or uh, a credible insight into what's going on with the campaign? Yeah, I think if we get to March 1st and we're still seeing stories like this, Peter McKay's got a really big problem. I think if he can get indeed get a campaign's infrastructure in place, real process, and really take the reins of his own leadership campaign uh, and sort this stuff out, he'll be pretty much smooth sailing and continue to be the front runner into June. I would also point out Peter McKay is the only candidate candidate that has paid the full $300,000 fee and has apparently has all 3,000 nomination signatures from across the country filed already. He's the first to do so. And so he's definitely way out in front in that regard. But uh, the broader kind of vision aspect of where you're going on this, if you compare what Conservative Party leadership candidates about are talking about with what's going on in the broader news, you hear them talking about a lot of small internal party stuff, still debating things like pride parades, and it's kind of, there's nothing aspirational or that invites new energy into the party, and when you contrast that to Prime Minister Trudeau dealing with the down Ukrainian airliner, dealing with the Wuhan crisis, and now going off on this foreign trip to Africa, the contrast between the actual Prime Minister and someone applying for the job uh, is not looking well on the Conservative Party right now, so Peter McKay's got to get his house in order and start putting some real... Ideas that people can get excited about and inspired about to grow his team to uh, ultimately be competitive in this race. All right. But, you know, when you talk about the pride parade, that question in, invariably or inevitably comes up with a conservative candidate because that becomes the new values test of whether or not you can aspire to be the leader of the country, which I find also uh, it's kind of a tawdry uh, standard by which to gauge or judge somebody's competence. But nonetheless, that's the media. That's a media driven story. Uh, that got nothing to do with McKay. I mean, the fact he takes the bait and answers it or runs with it. I mean, so I mean, there are so many other things like uh, the media has given a pass to Justin Trudeau on for the most part. So there seems to me to be a disparity in how the media may pay attention or focus on one at the expense of the other when the other has at least equal baggage, if not more so. Am I wrong about that assessment? 
Uh, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that on the issue of pride. I actually wrote an op-ed with my friend Melissa Lansman in the Globe and Mail back in the fall talking how the party just needs to get with the times and support all Canadians as opposed to casting moral aspersions on LGBTQ Canadians. And I think Peter McKay actually showed some leadership in getting out in front of that specific issue. But in the broader context, if you're running to be prime minister, I think you need to lay out a vision as to what it is you're looking to do. Instead of just talking about low taxes, a principled foreign policy and cutting red tape, those are things that pretty much 100% of conservatives are going to not their head on what are you actually bringing to the table that's going to say fix some of the issues the harper government had it's no secret a lot of the mandatory minimum uh, crime and justice laws they had have been overturned by the courts and peter mckay was justice minister so what are the some of the things he's learned as minister of justice and how the courts have struck down that legislation that he would bring to the table on things like criminal justice reform i uh, feel other issues like taxation i think lowering taxes cutting taxes again conservatives are going to get excited about that but what are you doing that's actually going to make a difference in people's lives while at the same time unlocking the potential of the economy and incentivizing the right sort of things. So I think if Peter McKay can shift this to a bigger picture uh, policy kind of vision kind of conversation while contrasting that with Justin Trudeau's failures, he's setting himself up in the party up for longer term success. But this kind of internal squabbles type stuff and a lot of process stories are definitely hampering uh, the early days of this race. Yeah, I don't disagree with that assessment insofar as uh, maybe he has to reposition or redefine conservatism and what it means. I mean, rather than bogging down on, you know, whether or not we're going to uh, somehow pander to social conservatives or try to, you know, winnow everybody into the big tent, uh, maybe there's a a certain pivot point that he can affect from a communication strategy, which is what your uh, beat is. I mean, what would you recommend? Like what you've already said, uh, notwithstanding does he uh, sell people on a different form of grassroots conservatism? Yeah, I think if you, I don't know if you saw the video online this week, Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the UK had a Conservative Party ad and it showed a guy, I want to say from Liverpool, I might be mistaken on that, but from north of England, uh, doing kind of white backdrop, regular voter, voted liberal, was always told, blue collar people, you vote liberal, you never voted conservative, but for the first time, felt that like what Boris Johnson was offering was speaking to the needs of the entire economy is not centered around London. The rest of the country can benefit. We need support. We need to like truly get this country going again and delivering on Brexit and things like that. And at the end of it, Boris Johnson walks on set and essentially thanks him and talks about how these are the kinds of people who, again, blue collar type of workers, a lot of people would traditionally associate with the labor movement and the NDP here in this country. How are we connecting with them and taking care of their interests and helping get them back to work to help grow the economy? Economy. And so you're kind of re not just, oh, build a bigger tent, which a lot of people just instantly gravitate to social issues and gra- appealing more to urban centers. But how are you actually unlocking different demographics who traditionally haven't voted conservative and rewriting the electoral calculus? I think if you look at what Boris Johnson has done in the UK since winning his leadership and then the more importantly, the election this past December, he is genuinely redefining what conservatism is in 2020 and beyond. And I think a conservative leader in Canada who's going to be successful is not going to beat Justin Trudeau at Justin Trudeau's own game. They're never going to be liberal enough. They're never going to be flashy socks enough. They're never going to be Mr. Celebrity enough. They've got to fundamentally redefine what the conservative coalition is and how it's kind of counterintuitively making people give the conservatives a second look, where in the past they might have just wrote them off. Well, and that's far more uh, critical, certainly in the 905, which is, and by the way, the liberals seemingly have successfully co-opted, you know, the people on the left to the point where the NDP is, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, not uh, any kind of a threat, a legitimate threat anymore. 
actually went down to 24 seats, and Jugmeet Singh was still seeing that as kind of a victory, maybe a Pyrrhic victory, you know, in that uh, he still believes he's got a swing uh, vote there or the power in the House. But, you know, to that point, the 905, it seems like it's impregnable. Uh, this fortress, you know, the Red Fortress Liberal, uh, that's the real, to me, uh the game changer if he can make some kind of impact or inroads in the 905 surrounding the GTA. Uh, what is, whether it's, you know, Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole or whoever leads the Conservative Party, what do they have to do to start winning people over to their side? So I think if you go back to what succeeded for Harper in 2011, I actually worked for Minister Jason Kenney for six years. And for three of those years I worked for him, we were traveling the country nonstop, giving a stronger presence of the government of Canada in Canada's diverse cultural communities and not just coming up to their festival and saying symbolic greetings and being in and out 20 minutes, actually building those relationships, hearing how the government of Canada is working or wasn't working for them and helping build that support amongst new Canadians. And I think the advantage that the Conservative Party built from its very first minority in January 2006 to that majority in 2011 uh, has evaporated. If you look at some of the touchpoint, flashpoint issues on immigration, the barbaric cultural practice snitch line is kind of like the embodiment of this problem going back to 2015 and the ongoing issues around these sorts of uh, discussions that have existed now for five years. The party can go after new Canadians and visible minority Canadians on the periphery of Toronto and in the 905 to talk about values and how hard work, individual responsibility, tax fairness, and those sorts of things can deliver the kind of government that they expect from Canada, as opposed to just playing into this fear-mongering, racist, anti-immigration kind of frame that the Liberals, quite frankly, have successfully cast around the Conservatives. So to break out of that, it's not just going to festivals and talking about these things and say, hey, we're different. You need to actually match that with action and back that up and look at policy initiatives that are going to deal with some of those issues that are, say, hampering small business in the 905. Well, yeah, that's the point, uh, because a lot of these uh, immigrant communities are... uh, Fiscal conservatives. Absolutely. As well as, dare I say, they're social conservatives to a certain extent. And it's sort of a, you know, perplexing or bewildering to me that they would make as the default position. And I shouldn't say this because, I mean, in terms of popular vote, uh, the conservatives did win the popular vote. But it's choosing the ridings just as it is with, you know, in the uh, United States when you've got uh, different, uh, you've got to win, you know, uh, how, how the, the vote breaks out, and you've got to be efficient with your vote, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and if you look at where Conservatives won, essentially, the popular vote, it was by running up 60 70% wins in places like Saskatchewan, in places like Alberta, where we essentially already held the seats. We picked up, of course, a few that the Liberals had won, uh, but fundamentally, it wasn't moving the dial on the seat count, whereas here in Ontario, we struggled a great deal. We did not pick up seats. We actually lost seats Former cabinet minister and deputy leader Lisa Wright lost her seat in Milton. People would have assumed that was a safer conservative riding on the periphery of the 905. And so I think if you look at some of the dynamics, uh, the, I think the Ford factor, quite frankly, was real here in Ontario. Did you? Because uh, if you look at how the exact same campaign played out in BC, where you have an NDP government, like not a crazy NDP government, but an NDP government on the left side with Premier Horgan, the kind of fiscal responsibility, family-friendly policies in terms of affecting your pocketbook and kind of getting government back down to size, that plus played well in BC. And we picked up seats back in the lower mainland that the Conservative Party lost in 2015. But in the contrast, if you look at what went on here in the 905, uh, anecdotally, I was on the road for the campaign with the campaign and 
up until about Thanksgiving, when you were talking to volunteers about what they were hearing at the doors, the Doug Ford factor was real, and there was kind of real, they were hearing, like, oh, we're not quite sure what's going on. This whole, like, Queen's Park stuff, we don't kind of like it. And that's not to blame Doug Ford for the electoral loss, but the Conservatives didn't have a sufficient enough strategy to inspire confidence to counter that kind of dynamic here in Ontario. So I think if you look... Uh, there's a lot of uh, people right now within the conservative movement asking if fiscal conservatism is dead. Uh, you saw Tim Hudak run on a very staunch fiscal conservative policy in 2014. Federal conservatives now have tried to do it two times in a row, and voters have essentially shrugged and be like, yeah, I'm okay with deficits because I'm getting ABC benefits, and it's just not something that's actually moving the dial. So if that's going to be the case, again, how can conservatives redefine their electoral map to rebuild a coalition that's opposed to just trying to chip away 3% here or 4% there uh, and keep running the same playbook that's pretty to be failing well it'll be interesting too because as you cited lisa Raitt and milton uh as much as anything that was ascribed to a demographic shift and a lot of younger people younger families in there and i don't know what uh the appeal was on offer from the liberals and uh mr vancouver at the uh at the time but nonetheless uh it's going to make for interesting uh i guess discussion in the lead up to it and whether aaron o'toole right now he and mckay are the uh two prohibitive favorites Mostly because of name recognition, I would believe. Yeah, they've also got the organization. Uh, Aaron of Tool, of course, was a respectable but distant third in the last leadership race. Uh, to be uh, kind of kind to him, you would assume he's learned some lessons and is running a smarter playbook this time around. And I don't think, even if you like Peter McKay and are open to the idea of supporting him for him, supporting him as front runner, I generally don't feel conservatives across the country want to see a coronation. They want to see the candidates challenge. They want to see a competitive race, and they actually want to kind of debate a future vision for Canada. But they're still doing the rank ballot thing, aren't they? They are indeed. And so this is how Andrew Scheer came to be the guy in charge after 13 votes and beat out Maxime Bernier. He's speak about the immigration policies and such. He would have actually curtailed immigration if he was in charge. <laughs> so this is where some of the rules that the party put in place was designed to have a smaller pool of candidates. The 1,000 signatures, $25,000 to first make yourself a viable candidate relatively attainable. Like that's easy to do if you seriously have the capacity to lead a political party and run a national campaign. The 3,000 signatures and $300,000, and those signatures have to come from 30 different ridings and seven out of the provinces and territories. You need an actual organization to be able to pull that off. And if you can't raise $300,000 in six months, you probably shouldn't be applying for the job of prime minister. Maybe you should focus on running for the local nomination or having other impacts on the party go f- going forward from here. So I think what the party has done, given this condensed nature of this race is force candidates to prove that they're actually viable by meeting these tougher criteria. That doesn't mean candidates that we're not talking about today that aren't Aaron O'Toole and aren't Peter McKay still can't run. They just have to actually show that they can grow quickly and have that appeal, which will translate in theory to future success. I just wonder if there's anybody else that might be viable with, as you say, uh, some kind of a ground game intact or name recognition, high profile. John Williamson's the only one that other people are really talking about right now. He was the former head of the Canadian Tax Base Federation. He was an MP in New Brunswick who was defeated in 2015, but actually just re-elected now or elected again in 2019. A lot of people who are kind of supporting Pierre Polyev and looking to be part of that campaign are looking to get behind him. So I think he would bring very much a broader uh, movement-based focused to the conversation and kind of focus on what conservatism be from an idea standpoint that I think would very much enrich the race. Be interesting. Uh, right now, it seems like, you know, with all due respect, uh, I'm sure most Canadians couldn't pick him out of a police lineup. Uh, 
notwithstanding his accomplishments and all the other wonderful things. That's 100% accurate, John. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> Jamie Ellerton is a principal at Canaptis. It's a PR agency. Communication strategy is their game. And uh, he was just telling us, uh, well, the lay of the land when it comes to the Conservatives picking a new leader on the 27th of June. Appreciate your time, Jamie. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.